practicing together on the new moon night, the first Patimokha of the Vasa. It's a suitable time to practice meditation. Very quiet outside. It's dark. So we have the seclusion of the forest. Gaya Viveka. Physically secluded from the activities of the world. The Buddha encourage bhikkhus to seek out Gaya Viveka as a supportive condition for the arising of Jitta Viveka. To support the development of Bhavana, Samadhi Bhavana, turning the attention inwards to know one's own body and mind with mindfulness and wisdom. To turn the mind away from the hindrances. Find some inner peace, silence, stillness. And this, he said, is a condition for the arising of upati viveka, seclusion from the defilements through the development of clear seeing of the way things are. This body, this mind, and the world, seeing it in its true light, anicca, dukkha, anatta, leading to the mind turning away from defilements and kilesa, far away. So the arahant is one who is far from kilesa, experiencing upati viveka, the highest peace, the highest happiness. Once we've achieved Gaya Viveka, then we have to put forth effort into the practice, into every aspect of the practice. So the Apanaka, Patipata, Ajahn Chah would always emphasize the practices that are never wrong, always right. Something we don't have to doubt about. Indriya Sangwara, 
sense restraint. <coughs> restraint of the senses, mindfulness applied to sense contact and the use of the senses. Bhojane matanyuta, the moderation in eating, consumption. Chakaryanu yoga, dedication to wakefulness, bringing up states of wakefulness, mindfulness and wisdom is functioning, awakening the mind. These three practices are never wrong and are entirely suitable for a secluded forest situation like this. Indriya Sangwaraz one of the most basic practices for a samana is both the practice of sila and restraint of the senses good conduct with our senses, using body and mind wisely, appropriately for a samana. But it's also the practice of samadhi, developing mindfulness through that restraint and composure. It also takes wisdom and develops wisdom, understanding the importance of sense contact as a doorway for defilement to arise and suffering to arise. Understanding the importance of developing mindfulness and restraint around the use of our senses as human beings. Goes hand in hand with the practice of patimokha, restraint in the patimokha, our actions, developing harmonious behavior with others, respect, compassion, frugality, honesty, and so on. <clears throat> restraint in livelihood, the way we earn our requisites in a pure way, unsolicited, without burdening others. And restraint in the use of requisites, pachawekana. Again, goes hand in hand with Indriya Sangwara. Learning to use the requisites that we use every day wisely through wise reflection, yonisomanasikara, appreciating the sacrifice of laity to provide us with the requisites and to drive out here often for an hour or two to support the monastery, they have to get up early to cook food, they have to sacrifice their wages, share what they have to 
help support, run, build the monastery. So a salmon as part of our sealer is to always reflect on the use of the requisites and wisely reflecting I use arms food, I use robes, kuti lodgings and so on. This is sealer, so it's not yet the wisdom that uproots the defilements. We might still have mental defilements arise as we use the requisites. But what purifies our use of the requisites is the restraint, the wise reflection as we use them. Before we eat, we reflect on the purpose of alms food. As we eat, after we eat, even if we still find we have some pleasure, greed arising on the pleasurable tastes of the food. We have old memories and mental proliferation around that. That might take longer to become aware of and to contemplate wisely and let go of, see through. But our duty is always to begin with wise reflection in the use of the requisites. Indriya Sangwara is supported and, and goes hand in hand with those other aspects of sila. Always establishing mindfulness over and over again as we see, hear, taste, smell, touch and using wisdom to reflect what is the right amount, what is the right way to to see what should we be looking at, what should we be restraining our eyes from, what is wholesome and supportive of the practice, what is a danger to the practice. See all the teachers that we have have all trained in Indriya Samwara so they know how to guard over their senses with mindfulness and wisdom and basic restraint and composure and following the Buddha's instructions as we walk Bindabhat we generally have our eyes cast down unless there's some obstacle to navigate around. But as you receive your food, we don't study and look at the face or the appearance of the laity. We cast our eyes down with humility and receive the food respectfully, peacefully. as we go about our business, whether it's in the monastery or traveling, we restrain our ears, what we hear, maybe the conversations of other people. We learn to establish mindfulness, what is appropriate for us. And sometimes there's conversations we don't need to be interested in. 
or it might be music or the sound of people, particularly the sound of the opposite sex, and learning to restrain the ears and the amount we're listening to others, to guard against sense contact that can give rise to kilesa and so on. This is a practice that is never wrong to bring out mindfulness and restrain this, the use of the senses in what we look at, what we listen to. Tasting with food, not to lose mindfulness as we eat, but to keep re-establishing mindfulness of taste, tasting and the process of eating. Restrained in the amount of food we eat, Bhojane Matanyuta, seeing the value of wise reflection on how much to eat, what is the right amount for one's individual needs to practice the Dhamma for a day and a night. Too little food might lead to weakness and agitation of mind, physical weakness. Too much food might lead to drowsiness, lethargy, indulgence and a sluggish state of mind. or just following desire when eating and not guarding the senses and not being modest in how much one eats, just eating all that one likes. Looking at the result of that, so using wisdom as well, reflecting on the result of when we lose our sense restraint and we're not moderate in our consumption of food or drink, what's the result of that? And as we're practicing mindfulness, we can see it makes the mind easy prey to kilesa. If you don't have, don't practice restraint, you just always give in to every desire, every like, every dislike, the mind actually becomes weaker. We have less self-control, less composure. The result of that is we become prey to suffering. Kalesa leads to suffering. So we become more restless, agitated, moody, and so on. So it's in our own interest to actually develop more sense restraint, mindfulness, and moderation in the use of food and other requisites. As the Buddha reminded us, there's nati dhanha samanati. There's no river as long as the river of craving. So actually following craving in the use of requisites breeds more discontent. Even though to restrain our desires at first seems to be difficult, the mind is perhaps restless and discontent and it seems logical if you restrain that 
then we'll just be miserable. And obviously we have to know our own level. You have to find the middle way for yourself. If you restrain yourself too much, you might become very negative, unhappy inside, too unhappy, and it's counterproductive. But also if we follow every desire, never learn to restrain the senses, learn to practice wise reflection and find the level of moderation, well, the mind becomes even more discontent in the long run, keeps moving from object to object, seeking one thing after another, one experience after another. It never settles down, never experiences much peace. The practice of sense restraint, moderation, it's in our own interest and it supports the deepening and the beginning of insight. We've seen the suffering that comes from following craving. We're starting to put a limit on it. If we can understand this point, even though it's not always easy, it gives you the right attitude, the right the value system in your practice. So it's part of right view, you might say, understanding what is wholesome dhammas and what is unwholesome dhammas. In the practice of restraint, practice of wise reflection in the use of requisites, Once you appreciate its value, it gives you the energy, the motivation to use these techniques, even though the mind can be quite stubborn and react against it. If you have the right value system in place, you understand the, the worthiness of it, the purpose of it, then it gives you that extra Momentum, extra effort to have a go at restraining a particular desire. We also need the mindfulness just to recognize desires when they're coming up to see, and then wisdom to see what needs to be done. This is all part of these practices. So they support the, uh, all the other aspects of the path are supported by sense restraint and moderation. Bringing up mindfulness in this way also supports the last of those, apanaka, patipata, all the uh, constant bringing up of wakefulness, awakening to the truth as it is unfolding in the here and now for you in your daily activities, whether you're meditating or eating or walking around the monastery, cleaning, bathing or so on. Awakening to the present moment, being able to recollect the present moment with presence of mind so that wisdom can function, so that you can know more deeply what are you doing, what's going on, what's happening in this mind at this moment. And this is the way we learn. 
start investigating once the mind is awakened with mindfulness we can actually investigate truth more deeply obviously if you're asleep you can't investigate much but even when we're awake we tend to always be caught into mental proliferation daydreaming wandering different moods fantasies and imagination and that is also as if the mind is asleep when mindfulness is lost so it's also waking up even though we're awake but waking up within that state of being awake waking up to the Dhamma through development of mindfulness wakefulness so it might be just as we're at our kuti when you wake up in the morning what is your state of mind as you begin your day the different aspects of the training support wakefulness Ajahn Chah always encouraged us to first thing of the day is bow it's a physical movement that physically wakes you up by bowing also sets your mind on Buddha Dhamma Sangha and the path of practice or before you leave your kuti to bow when you return to your kuti to bow as a very direct way to bring up mindfulness and focus the mind to cut through the mental proliferation and daydreams bring you back to the present moment if you train in that you can even notice sometimes a reluctance to actually be present with the act of bowing so you'll see you tend to bow very quickly in a half-hearted way maybe just nod up and down without really moving the body very much maybe sometimes if you're in a hurry for something that might be the right way to bow but it's something to look at you know, if you do bow what is your state of mind as you bow are you using it as a vehicle for developing the awakened state where mindfulness is present sometimes the mind just wants to stay thinking about some totally unrelated thing can you drop that while you bow and obviously every other activity in your day whether it's sitting or walking meditation or other things can you cut through the mental proliferation and the daydreaming by focusing with mindfulness on what you're doing the sense restraint moderation in consumption of requisites and food and other requisites and then dedication to wakefulness these are three areas where you're cutting through this mental proliferation and bringing the mind back to Dhamma as you use your eyes if something's caught your eye it's alright to look at things but look at the motivation and the intention behind the eye that is looking and look at the result of your looking if you're looking at a picture in a book what's going on in the mind is it being drawn away from the present moment into 
feeding various fantasies or proliferations or bringing up memories. In some sites, can you actually pull your mind away from the sight of something? It might be a person. If it's somebody you dislike, then you might be looking at them with aversion, studying their behavior, maybe with a critical mind. And can you pull your mind away from that, pull your eyes away? If it's someone you're attracted to, attracted to the form or the dress or the look of somebody, can you pull your mind away from that, pull your eyes away? This is, these are the techniques of developing the foundations of mindfulness in daily life that the Buddha gave us as bhikkhus, satipatthana in practice. And Jinchar always talked about that vasa where he determined not to look at a woman for three months. And as he was receiving food, not to look at their face, not to look at their clothes or figure, just to focus on the arms bowl with mindfulness, receive the food, contemplate the food as Ahari Patikula Sanya, the unattractive side of food, the four elements and so on, and then to walk away without looking at the lay person. He could do it for three months. He said at the end of the three months, he still, when he next looked at a lay woman on Bindabhata, he saw there's still lust in the mind, still there. But it was at least completely under his control. The composure was there. He could look or not look as he chose. He had that much restraint and control of his faculties. Once you've got that kind of restraint, then you can work internally on your own lust, the pleasurable feeling your mind might be seeking based in the body, and the delusions of attractiveness of the physical body and so on. You, once you've developed sense restraint and mindfulness, wakefulness, then you're in a position to contemplate akilesa, to look at it understand it, see it as a kilesa, see it as the cause of suffering, as samudaya, and start to remedy it using wisdom, actually uproot it by changing your perception. Unless we develop these basic practices, then it's very difficult for wisdom to function properly, because it will constantly be interrupted by different hindrances and kalesas. Constantly the mind will be dropping away into mental proliferation and different moods and daydreams, sleepiness and so on. Some people might think well, to just practice not looking at a woman for three months. You know, if at the end of that you've still got lust, what's the point? But it's a step on the path. You have to take the bottom step before you can go to the top step. Or learning to be restrained in food, eating the food. It's something you have to do every day, so you can't escape <coughs> just by fasting, say. But you can learn to eat 
with restraint, just eating enough of whatever food is offered. You can take a modest amount and that's probably good enough. Don't have to necessarily be so strict that one is forcing oneself to eat a very tiny amount or anything, but just not to indulge to the point where the mind is just caught into endless proliferation about food lost in it. When you're eating, to actually bring your mind to contemplate the process of eating rather than just fantasizing once you've got the thing your mind wants, once you get your desire satisfied, the mind tends to proliferate about 101 other things. Just to keep bringing the mindfulness back to the bowl, taking the food up, chewing mindfully, tasting, swallowing, contemplating the way food changes instantly from something desirable to something undesirable as soon as it's mixed with saliva and chewed its real nature comes out and you wouldn't want it to again if you spat it out you wouldn't want to eat it again it goes into the stomach digested and the majority of it comes out as excrement at the other end The contemplation of, or the practice of restraint and mindfulness, and then the contemplation of that process exposes truth, shows us the truth about this body, about food, about this whole world. We have to calm the mind down enough to actually see that taking place, to be mindful of eating, tasting, swallowing, digesting, excreting and so on. Then when you go to the toilet, it's actually a relief when you excrete, isn't it? Physically dumping a large weight of waste material from your body so you actually physically feel some relief. When you, according to desire to eat, you forget the suffering of eating and just caught into the color and taste and smell of food. But all it does is bring you that heavy feeling as you digest, the heavy feeling of waste matter building up in your intestine and then the relief that comes when you excrete it out or the pain if you're constipated say your mindfulness exposes the truth to us it just shows us and this is the truth true nature of our existence and it takes the mind to a higher place a more refined kind of happiness based on clear seeing of the way things are You see the impermanence of, say, tasting, just one sense, but you could pick any sense, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. So uncertain, smells come and go, tastes come and go, a few seconds and they're gone. Sights come and go, sounds come and go, very uncertain. 
difficult to hold on to. Difficult to hold on to a beautiful sight, beautiful sound for very long. All we need to do is establish mindfulness of that arising and passing away and it gives us insight into the nature of the senses of the eye, the form that the eye sees, the consciousness that arises and then passes away. And this kind of reflection based on the practice of sila, restraint in sila and then mindfulness practice when the mind calms down, this kind of reflection is also accompanied by a sense of joy, the joy of seclusion in jitta viveka, leading to upati viveka. Just as an idea, it tends to sound pretty dull. It's going away from the world, so it sounds unexciting, unattractive, undesirable just to contemplate the impermanence of all your sense contact, everything that seems pleasurable and nice in the world, just to see that as impermanent coming and going as an idea, as a concept that's not very desirable, not very attractive, but as an experience of actually mindfully focusing on the cessation of sense contact the pleasure, the pain that comes with it, then the mind actually appreciates the value of the practice again, why the Buddha was teaching this. There's a certain sense of freedom, to be free from desire, even just small desires that one previously held, is a freeing up of the mind, where the mind was previously full of desire, is now empty of desire, so it seems free and spacious. A bit like a room, if you've filled a room with many things over the years, cluttered up, full up with all kinds of baggage, even even though those individual items in the room at one time or other might have been useful or seemed good, but the overall result of filling a whole room up with many things is that the room becomes cluttered and unpleasant to be in, or maybe you just can't even be in it because it's too cluttered. If you to take everything out, there'd be a great sense of spaciousness, freedom, ease, and the eyes looking into that room would be peaceful, was there not, not a lot of clutter. It's that kind of freedom that the Buddha was talking about, pointing to, that comes through insight and contemplating impermanence, using the backdrop of sila, samadhi, and see the impermanence of your sense contact and the objects of the senses that we're normally so fixed on, think about so much, get distracted by and identify with so much. The way of the world is generally to value the more power you have to gratify your senses, to have everything you want, when you want, in the way you want, on the sense level. We see that as the highest. 
That's, but that's the nature of the sensory realm, what we call the gama loka. Even the heaven realms are still in that way. The highest happiness would be the highest happiness of the heaven realms where all our senses are gratified instantly with whatever we want, pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, taste, smell, touch. That's the nature of the sensual realm that we are bound to, having been born as human beings, or even if we were to be born in heaven. We'd be seeking that. The Buddha said it's like a cocoon. It's like we're sort of surrounded by some kind of impervious material it's just seems everything inside seems good but we're still completely surrounded and stuck inside this cocoon it's only through developing mindfulness and insight in this way like putting persistent effort into the development of mindfulness and insight that it there's a chance that you can start maybe piercing a hole or somehow separating the fibers of this cocoon that is enshrouding you and the mind goes through to something completely liberating outside where it's not bound by an dukkha anatta and not bound by desire always seeking desire and for the things we like and running away from the unpleasant experiences actually knows the nature of experience is impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. The only way to experience that is just to train the mind in investigating, looking, just keep looking day after day through our practice little by little gaining more deeper experience deeper insight seeing the nature of the senses that we have here and the limitations of the senses this body and this mind and the sensual realm and we train our mind in investigation in vitaka vichara the ability to direct the mind to contemplate, to observe, to look at things more closely using mindfulness as well as a backdrop, as a foundation. The more we do this, the more we investigate, we get to see what is what in the body, the the Buddha's words or the translated words of the body in the body another way of saying it is the body is just the body it's not me, my, myself it's nothing permanent nothing that can give us any kind of permanent happiness because it's impermanent and the senses are impermanent the physical body is made up of the four elements which are impermanent, changeable. Every aspect of this body you can just see impermanence. 
this uncertainty, unpredictability of the nature to decay, to degenerate. And just getting to see the body as just the body rather than keep identifying with that which is very impermanent and no, no real self, nothing that we can say is a lasting self. And feelings as well, based on all that sense contact, the pleasure and the pain we experience. Training the mind to see is just, feeling is just feeling. It's not me, mine, myself. Arises, passes away. Even working on memory, we can contemplate you know, feeling in the past, feeling in the present, and then feeling in the future. Once you understand feeling in the present and the past, well, you'll know if feeling in the future is going to be just the same as what it was in the past. So, Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta. Subtle feelings, refined feelings, coarse feelings. Very pleasant, modestly, moderately pleasant, only a little bit pleasant, a little bit unpleasant, moderately unpleasant, extremely unpleasant. Whatever grade you put on it, Nietzsche Dukkha Anatta. Directing the mind to contemplate like this doesn't lead to the uh, state of the meaningless of life. If one is doing it with mindfulness and really contemplating to see the truth, then there's this sense of release and breaking open the cocoon, finding something a little bit different outside. Seeing the real nature, true nature of these things, breaking through delusions, formerly held delusions. If we continue to practice, in one aspect of Chakarayanu Yoga is continuity of effort, sustained effort, sincere effort to bring up wakefulness. And that's partly because the way you know, Dhamma arises, the way the mind turns in towards the Dhamma, insight arises, it can be at any time, it's timeless, the Dhamma is timeless. So it can be in the middle of the day or in the middle of the night, insights, seeing things differently in a new, in the light of insight, you know, it can come at any time. Even in the midst of great suffering, insight can arise. If we can only stop and look using our mindfulness, using wisdom to investigate the truth of our experience. You know, any time, however difficult the practice may seem, however boring or painful or 
whatever one's particular suffering one is experiencing, there's always an opportunity to become a little bit wiser within that experience, to look at it a little bit more deeply, separate the mind that knows the experience in a pure way from the experience itself. There's another aspect of, say, insight, just seeing and knowing something as it is, just that much feeling is just feeling, thought is just thought. The mind is just the mind, memory is just memory. It's just that clear knowing of something as it is, without adding anything more onto the experience, just knowing it's just that much. The body is just that much, feeling is just that much, thought is just that much. And the next moment is some kind of release even from the greatest, most extreme emotional state of rage or despair or lust, there can still be a stepping back, a detachment from that. Insight could arise at any time if one's willing to keep applying mindfulness, keep applying the, the basic techniques that the Buddha gave us. Nothing the Buddha's already proven it to us and all the, all the teachers have proven it to us. There's nothing that cannot be seen and known with insight. You're the most extreme, unpleasant condition of mind or body can still be seen as an Ichadukha Anatta. So if you've started with small insights in small ways, you can have the confidence that if you keep practicing then there's nothing that cannot be known and revealed with insight as an Ichadukha Anatta. Ajahn Chah had that simile of you know, the self, what we normally identify with as self, the five aggregates, like this big inflatable doll, huge sense of self and insight is like puncturing a hole in it so it all all the air comes out and it shrivels up back to nothing even the most extreme sort of emotional turmoil we can go through sometimes if we're willing to keep bringing the mind back establishing mindfulness and investigating it can shrink shrivel up down to nothing Whereas, where at this time in your life you probably had some difficult periods of suffering in the past and where are they now? Even in the past you can reflect back on how things have come up and gone away again. Arose and pass away. If you keep practicing like that then you can even see it in the present moment. Just see it as a phenomenon arising, passing away. So tonight is a new moon night. We have the chance to practice quietly using these 
methods and ways of practice the Buddha gave us and Ajahn Chah and our other teachers have given us. And the Buddha said if we practice, we dedicate ourselves to the practice of Satipatthana, within seven days, seven nights, can completely free the mind from defilement and break, break out of the cocoon to the spaciousness to the, of the empty mind, the mind free from suffering. If not seven days, seven nights, and seven months. If not seven months, seven years. If not seven years, seven lifetimes. Whatever way, if we dedicate, dedicate ourselves to this practice, it is possible for us to break out, to find freedom. So I'll leave you with these words tonight.